Well, open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 7. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We are slowly working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And as we do, we're hearing and seeing the Lord Jesus through the lens of Mark, who was informed by the Apostle Peter, who was writing primarily to a Gentile audience. Mark is unique in that it's the shortest of the Gospels. It's the most fast-moving. And one of the things that's gripping about Mark is how much action is happening in this narrative. So much action is, is pouring out of Mark's pen that there's less teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark than any of the other four Gospels. But when Mark stops to tell us something that Jesus taught, it ought to alert our attention. And we come to one of those texts today. Mark chapter 7. Let me read the text so we we have it in our minds. Mark 7 verse 14 all the way through verse 23. Mark 7 14. Follow along as I read. After Jesus called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me. All of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he left the crowd and entered the house, His disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared, all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. One of the great joys of my ministry here at Mission Road was to take a group of many of you men at 5.30 in the morning on Wednesday mornings, we called it Theology for Breakfast, over the course of three years through every single page of Wayne Grudem's 1,264-page Systematic Theology. We covered every page. We talked through it. We were looking at, at theology, and this is what we looked at. We studied theology proper, which is the study of the character of God. We looked at angelology, which is the study of angels. We looked at biblical theology, which is the the relationship of the Bible to itself. 
Christology, the study of Christ. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Eschatology, the study of end times. Harmardiology, the study of sin. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Soteriology, the study of salvation. And we also studied something called theological anthropology, which is the study of human nature. Now, during that study, one of the most interesting times was that last category when we talked for weeks about theological anthropology, which is understanding man, uh, what he's about, what makes him up. It's interesting, it's intriguing, it causes immediate introspection. When you're talking about mankind and then you stop to realize, hey, I'm a part of mankind, it makes you automatically personalize these things. When you look at a theological anthropology, in other words, what is man about, what is man like from a theological biblical perspective, you find that man's origin is of divine origin. God created man and woman and put them in the garden. You find out that man has dignity. He's made in the image of God. No animal is made in the image of God. Man has material and immaterial constituents. In other words, I have a body that's flesh and blood, but I have a soul that will live on forever. We see that man is made male and female from the beginning. So being male and being female is in the dignity and the image of God in which he made us. He created races and ethnicities. And in Revelation 7 says that all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, every division among man will come together one day to give him the worship together that he deserves. But if you look closer at biblical or or theological anthropology, you see that man fell from a state of innocence. He fell into sin that made him sinful and depraved And man will ultimately live forever in a Christless eternity called hell or a Christ-filled eternity called heaven. All of the categories of systematic theology are critical. They're important. They have connective tissue with each other. They cannot be severed one from the other. But... If you back up one step and look at the whole Bible from Genesis through Revelation you find that the greatest attention of Scripture is given, ready, to man's depravity, his fallenness. We often say that the theme of Scripture is the glory of Christ and redemption, but that only makes sense if you understand how much in need man is of redemption. In fact, you could rightly say that The revealing of man's sinfulness, the solving of man's sinfulness is the grand theme of Scripture. You could outline the whole Bible in three points. God and man's relationship before the fall. God and man's relationship after the fall to bring him in right relationship with himself. And man's relationship with God after the consummation and in eternity. We would expect then if Man's sinfulness and man's redemption is the central theme of Scripture that our Lord Jesus, being God in flesh, would address this issue. That's exactly what the focus of the passage before us is. The title of today's sermon is The Residence of Evil. 
And this is exactly where Jesus points us to consider with his divine authority, the locus of evil. We're gonna see where evil resides and we're gonna see what that means. So let's break this passage down in an outline and find together two divine elaborations on the residence of evil. Two divine, because Jesus is giving these, elaborations, explanations, two divine elaborations on the residence of evil. In verses 14, number one, he gives us the residence of evil revealed. He's going to just tell us flat out where it is. The residence of evil revealed. Verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again. Stop right there. In the previous section, Jesus had been accosted. He had been surrounded. He was being pressed on by a delegation from Jerusalem, the scribes and Pharisees who had come up to try to trap Jesus, to shut him up, to shut him down, to see what he was about. And they called attention to the fact that he and his disciples did not observe the traditions of men. The implication was was that they only observed the traditions of the Bible. And we looked very intently at the fact that, that that section, that little paragraph, that little pericope is where Jesus says, God's word is where you look, not the traditions of men. If you want authority about God, authority about man, authority about the world. It seems that during this time, the crowd were elbowed out of the way. In fact, the verse in the verb in verse one that they had crowded around him indicates that they had taken over. Jesus had a crowd of people around him. They swarmed in. The crowd backed up in deference to these, this delegation of religious officials who'd traveled up from Jerusalem. And now in verse 14, he has dissed and dismissed these Pharisees. They go away, tail between their legs, and the crowd starts coming back. He calls them back to himself. He invites them. He's finished with these critics, and he invites the crowd to come near again. And he makes an announcement. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Three parts of that. Listen to me, comprehensively, all of you, but listen to understand. In other words, lean in and think closely and, 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 and deliberately about what I'm saying. That indicates that it's possible to listen and not really listen. Listen. To listen and not really understand. He says, what I'm about to say is of critical importance. So then he gives this revelation of where evil comes from. And just as a little footnote, by the way, if, if you have self-esteem issues, this is not going to be a pleasant experience. But it's going to be a joyful one once we understand the solving of the issues we have with our own self-perception. Verse 15, Jesus says, There is nothing outside the man, a person, which can pollute him, defile him, make him spiritually unworthy in the presence of God. If it goes into him. This is obviously talking about the, 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 the dietary rituals that Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy pick up. He says, nothing goes in you and makes you evil or bad. But here it is. If you underline things in your Bible, this is an underlining phrase. But the things which proceed 
of the man are what defile the man. He moves from this debate of his critics, the Pharisees, the defilement bait, they had, debate, they had said, if you don't wash your hands correctly, if you don't eat correctly, then, then you're not a godly person. Jesus had corrected them, and now he talks to the crowd with greater generality. He gave a public answer, really, to the, the question in verse 5, where this delegation says, Why don't your disciples live in accordance with the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Why are they not paying attention to an extra-biblical Authority, and they only listen to you and the Torah. Here, Jesus reverses the polarity in one of the most profound theological realities in all of the Word of God. He reveals that sin and spiritual defilement come from not outside, that happens to us, it comes from our hearts. In other words, I wrote this in my notes and I remember writing it down thinking, that is not gonna be the easiest thing to say, but let me just say it. Your biggest problem is you. That was Jesus, not, not me. Sin, Jesus says, he makes this pronouncement. It's not what comes outside that influences you. It's what's in your heart. He's going to explain that more in verse 17. Just a little footnote. Verse 16 says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear it. Uh, if, you, if you have an ESV, an RSV, an NIV, an NRSV, an NEB, an REB, a GMB, or, or uh, some other translation, that verse might actually not be in your Bible. In fact, in those Bibles, it skips from verse 15 to verse 17. Some of you are nodding. You're looking at your Bible and you see that. In the New American Standard, you'll see that it has brackets around it, right? Now, just a head start. When we get to uh, Mark chapter 16, I'm going to do an entire sermon on what we call textual criticism, on getting the manuscripts that we have assimilated into good working order so that we understand why we have the Bible we have. Very important. Those brackets in the NAS and the fact that some of your Bibles skipped that verse altogether, just tell us this, that that phrase is not in the best and in the earliest manuscripts. However, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that phrase. Jesus has already said that a number of occasions in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 6. It just means that it's not in the best manuscripts. Don't have heartburn. Don't think that someone has hijacked your Bible. Uh, this is, 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 there are several other passages that, that are like this that are well-known. One in John at the end of Mark we'll look at as well. Don't let that intimidate you. Just understand why it's in brackets and understand why in some of your Bibles it goes from 15 to 17. And again, if you can just hold on a little while, when we get to Mark 16, we're going to have a, a good theology session. We're going to have basically a classroom on Sunday morning and talk about this thing called textual criticism and how we got this manuscript in Mark and all the manuscripts in the New Testament. Really important. Don't let that alarm you. Let's look at the second divine elaboration on the residence of evil. And this is where Jesus begins his explanation. Number two, the residence of evil explained the residence of evil explained i hope you've already picking up on what jesus is saying that the residence of evil is your heart that's where evil lives that's where it resides verse 17 change of scenery 
when he had left the crowd and entered the house. So this is what Mark highlights so often in this book. Jesus is teaching the crowds. This happened with the parable of the sower as well. He's making these grandiose pronouncements. He's speaking sometimes in parables as is in a, a riddle or a parable here. They get alone with Jesus and the disciples say, they kind of look at each other, raise their hand and say, um, about what you said. And so he has to elaborate and tell his closest companions what he really meant, which I'm so grateful in the providence of God he did because you and I would have asked the same questions. He left the crowd, entered the house, and his disciples questioned him about the parable. We don't know what questions they ask, but it had to be something of the order of, so you said that all the ritual eating of a good dietary Jewish diet, it, that, that, if I don't do that, that doesn't mess me up. But if I am messed up, you're saying that that's already in my heart and, and comes out. Can you take me from black and white to color? Give us some more, some more color, some more insight in that. James Edwards says this. This is really interesting. By the way, the disciples hear Jesus say, are you so lacking in understanding also? Are, are you like the crowds? They don't get it. You don't get it either. I love what James Edwards says. This is fun. The disciples are like a dog looking at the pointed finger of its master rather than the object to which the finger points. They are like people looking at the stained glass windows of a cathedral from the outside. Their sight and understanding are correspondingly dull and lifeless, end quote. I love that illustration. So your dog is looking at you, you say, go over there, and the dog looks at your finger. And you say, no, no, the, the point is what I'm pointing to. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus asks him, are you two, you don't get it either? And before you test Jesus's patience, watch him throughout this book, watch him throughout the gospels that even though he tells them you should have got this, he still goes ahead and gives them an explanation. So he restates it, verse, middle of verse 18. Do you not understand that, here it is, whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart. Rather, it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. There's a significant moment in the progression of Revelation. Mark lets us know that during this conversation, by the way, Jesus declares all foods clean. I know that in Acts chapter 10, Peter's having a difficulty about Old Testament, New Testament coming together, about the Jewish dietary laws and about the New Testament freedom. And he's trying to sort this out. And God, in a vision, drops a big sheet like a overhead projector and says, here are the unclean animals, including pork. He says, rise, kill, and eat. Well, sometimes we look at that and say, that's where all food was declared clean. No, Mark tells us something else. Jesus himself said that what you eat according to the Levitical law that you're forbidden to eat 
will not and cannot defile you. Now, we have to ask, step back and ask a question about that for a second. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14 said, eat like this as a Jew. Why? Predominantly, it was to keep them separated from the pagan nations around them. In this reversal, Jesus says, don't let diet keep you from eating with an, an infidel, an unbeliever, someone who's not of the faith. Food should not be an obstacle. As we'll see someday if we get to 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, 8, 9, and 10, Paul says the same thing. Don't let food be, be something that keeps you from evangelism. Here's what's critical. This is a chills on your arm moment if you stop and see what's happening here. Leviticus 11 says, eat like this. Deuteronomy 14 says, eat like this. And now Jesus says, you don't have to. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is actually and verbally superseding the law. This is no small matter. He did the same thing back in chapter 2, verses 27 and 28 about the Sabbath. You'll remember that. Don't miss the reality that for Jesus of Nazareth to presume to make a judgment on divine revelation in the law, he is assuming the role of God, the author of Scripture. You know why? He is the author of Scripture. The same lesson will be reiterated in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. And the point was, by the way, eating a certain way never made a Jew clean. Read Isaiah 66. You obey me with your, your externals. You have this, all, all this, the, these external uh, features of obedience, but your heart is far from me. In verse 20, he begins to explain the lesson and the residence of evil. Now, before we move on, do, do you understand that Jesus Christ made a pronouncement about the Old Testament law where his word then superseded the Older Testament? We'll see in a minute. You can read the Sermon on the Mount. He keeps saying, you have read, you have heard it said, but what? I say. Who can, only one person in the history of humanity can look at, the, at the, the, the word of God and say, I have the absolute accurate interpretation of that and I alone can say that has now been fulfilled and we have a new dispensation that comes. Verse 20, now he starts the lesson. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. Now, without being graphic, but this is a, a fairly graphic illustration in verse 19. He says, let's think about this. You eat food, you digest the food, and he's, his words are, it's eliminated. It goes into and out of your body. But he uses a spiritual and a physical reality that they would have understood because of all the cleaning of animals they had done and also the spiritual reality of the metaphor, he says none of that food that you eat goes into your heart. It doesn't physically, and it doesn't metaphorically. 
What goes into your body is nutrition and then it's eliminated. It's just food that you have a relationship with for about 24 hours. The heart is the issue. This is a repeat, verse 20 is, of the lesson to the Pharisees and scribes and the crowds and the disciples. But now he goes into specifics. The Lord does a public dissection of the human heart. I mean, he takes our souls out. He takes our hearts out. He lays them on the spiritual operating table. He says, I want to show you what's in you. Back in verse 6, he quoted Isaiah 29.3. Their heart is far from me. That's the essence of hypocrisy. You have an external system of religion. You look good on the outside. In our vernacular, you may come to church. You may go to small group, care group, uh, uh, youth group, singles ministry. You're, you're involved in the missions conference. You look great on the outside, but inside the heart is lacking a true connection and relationship with God. You say, what is the heart? Well, it's not the muscle that moves blood around your body. Here, it's, it's the seat of emotion and volition and decisions. The best, honestly, the best description of the heart I have ever heard is from our friend, um, Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, who says, the heart are your affections. He says, it's the way that your whole soul leans. And it leans naturally away from God and it leans toward our own desires. It's your affections. Now, Jesus gets really specific about the residence of evil being the human heart. And he lists 12 sins that break down into two categories, six each. The first six are actions that we do externally. The last six are attitudes that come out of our thinking, out of our non-material being. Let's just go through the list and look at our hearts. Now, before we jump into this conveyor belt, you're going to be tempted, as I was studying this, you're going to be tempted to say, yeah, 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 for other people. That one for me, but not that one, not that one, not that one. I think Jesus is saying all of these sins are in acorn or oak demonstrations in all of our hearts. Let's dial in in verse 21. For from within, inside the heart, the human heart, out of our non-material being, out of the heart of men, proceed. This would have been seismic for the Jews to hear in that day. They had been taught over and over by the traditions of the elders, the traditions of the Pharisees, the traditions of men. If you will keep these external regulations, God looks at you with a smile. It's just heartbreaking. It breaks my heart. Yesterday, it was, I live, Kim and I live in a, in a neighborhood that's, that's, that's surrounded by Orthodox Jews. And it was pouring rain. And our neighbor friends were walking with all of their gear on to the synagogue. You know why? Because they thought God would be impressed with what they did. It's not what you wear. It's not whether you walk in the rain. 
It's not whether you come to church for us. It's not whether you give. It's not whether you come to the missions conferences. It's not whether you knock on doors. It's where our heart is with relationship to understanding God's expectations and understanding the residence of evil that really is in who we are. Let's look a little more closely at this list. Now, to begin with, Jesus notes that defilement, said, comes from within, not from outside. And before we drill down on the list, remember, this is exactly what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, Matthew 5, 21 says, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. One of the Ten Commandments, absolutely. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, but I say. But I say, who can say that only one who's ever lived, Jesus? He says, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. He goes on. Whoever says to her brother, you're good for nothing, he shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. Jesus says, even if you obey a commandment externally, but your heart is not in it, there's a problem. Five verses later in Matthew 5, 27, he said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he gives that. Radical illustration. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the body parts than for you to, your whole body to be thrown in hell. He says the same thing about the right hand and the left hand. We've said this over and over. If It's exaggeration for the purpose of making the point. If you pluck your eye out, isn't that sufficient enough for the eye not to work? Of course it is. He says, if you pluck your eye out, that's not enough. Take the eye and throw it far from you. In other words, go to radical extremes to protect what's inside your heart and what's coming out. Jesus made the point that what a person does in his or her actions is rooted in evil thoughts in our hearts. And these evil thoughts of the heart will eventually make themselves out somewhere in our living. Verse 21 again. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. There's where I get that idea that the heart is the residence of evil. That's where they come from. That's where evil comes from. Proverbs 30, uh, 23 verse 7. For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. The word thoughts is an interesting word. Dialogismos. And the idea is your thoughts are what you say and how you talk to yourself. I mean, don't we have conversations in our mind all, all day long? We, we think about things, we, we test things, we, 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 we push things back and forth in our mind, we try things on in our mind. He says that's where your inner reasoning or perception is. Let's jump into these first six. Fornications. Fornications come out of the heart. 
It's a form of the Greek word porneia. Now, from that word, our application day is pornography, but there was no pornography per se in that day. There were uh, frescoes and paintings of, of, uh, of lewd acts that they would put on certain uh, buildings, but predominantly, it just meant sexual variance, committing any kind of sexual sin with your body. This is premarital sex. I'm getting this out of a dictionary. Premarital sex and fondling inappropriate sexual advances, flirtation with anyone who is not your spouse. That's what's involved in this word. So to do anything sexually with anyone who's not your spouse is sin and rooted in the heart. Secondly, he says thefts. From the Greek word klope or klepto from which we get our English word kleptomaniac, right? Stealing is simply taking something that is not yours. You say, oh, I don't do that. Okay. How about cheating on your taxes? Taking things from work? Borrowing items and not returning them? Seminary students need to ask themselves if they have my books right now. So... Getting too much change and thinking the Lord has blessed you. Recording music that's not your own, that you haven't bought. We could go on and on and on and on. Being a thief is way easier than you might imagine. Comes out of our heart. Murders. It was funny to to read this. Uh, uh, Phonos in the Greek, it means to kill someone. And so many people saying, well, he wasn't really thinking about murder. I I think he was thinking about murder. It's it's taking revenge. It's taking someone's life. It's not as prominent and prevalent in our world as it was in the world Jesus was addressing. The illicit taking of another person's life, we could apply modern-day abortion to that. Adulteries. It's a different word than porneia, moikia. It's a reference to desires and behaviors motivated from the desire for another man's wife or another woman's husband. This is what's forbidden in the, in the commandment to the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. All you have to do is flip on the news and see that this is a prevalent sin rooted in the heart that's expressed far too often. And deeds of coveting. Notice it says deeds of coveting. That's why I said this is external. He's gonna move to the internal heart in a moment. These are external actions. He could have just said coveting, which is between your ears. He said deeds of coveting. It's a reference to greed and materialism. It means acting sinfully because of wanting what others have. This could be stealing, going into unwise debt, making bad, sinful, poor decisions because you want to have what other people have, either theirs or you want to have what they have that's yours gained in an unwise or sinful way. Then he groups all of it together. He has a summary statement at the end of the six, just like he will at the second six. Finally, he says... By adding, and wickedness. Paneria. 
It just means anything that's against the prescribed, revealed word of God. Just wickedness. It's not righteous, which is prescription from God's word. It's wickedness. Anti-ah, biblical. He says all these things that people do are not actions that they do that were influenced from the outside. All these actions are rooted in the residence of evil that resides in our heart. That's his point. And before the disciples can take a breath, before the disciples can even say, yes, but, now he goes from the outside to the inside. In the second six, he goes to the attitudes. First, he says, deceit. Dalos in the Greek. Crafty, lying, deception. This could refer to exaggeration, half-truths, overstating, understating, and just plain avoiding telling the truth. We're deceptive. A true believer has a good relationship with the truth and a horrid relationship with falsehood. Sensuality. Different than porneia, this is Aselgeia, it's a different Greek word. It's a reference to unbridled lust. This is just, it means having a dirty mind. This can apply to watching sexual content in the ancient theater. We're not the first ones who've had R-rated movies. It can refer to dirty jokes. It can refer to talking about sexuality in a way that's not appropriate. Obviously, pornography in our context, immodesty. And the primary application of this is sexual fantasizing. In other words, going to a place in your mind sexually with someone who's not your spouse that's sinful. It's just really simple. Jesus, I know this may not be G-rated, but that's exactly what Jesus said not to do. It's exactly what Jesus said to point to your heart to find where this comes from. Then envy, it's the translation of two Greek words, could literally be, it's it's interesting, evil eye, evil eye. It means to look at others with jealousy and with hatred. Some ancient translations translate this, broken-eyed, your eye is broken. You're looking with a, with a, with a tilt, with, a, with kind of a visual lisp to look at things with a, a greedy mind, an envy eye. One of the ways that's expressed is by not rejoicing with people who are blessed. And instead of rejoicing with them, we, we think about why we're not blessed. Slander. It's a form of the Greek word blasphema, to speak ill of. Abusive or injurious speech toward others. It means attempting to damage or harm another's reputation in someone's mind with your words. Any one of these could be a whole sermon by themselves, couldn't it? Pride. 
feelings of superiority, arrogance, self-promotion, looking down on others in your heart, thinking you are better because you are you and they are them. It's pride. Opposite of humility. Then at the end of this list, he grabs it all, just like he did wickedness for the first list. He grabs it all and says, it's all foolishness. It's foolish to live, live in a way that your heart is given free reign to express itself sinfully without any fight, any war against our own souls from the better part of our nature that's Christ and the Holy Spirit living in us. Now you would think that that would be enough. <laughs> you would think the disciples would say, uncle, I get it. Okay, pinned, you're right, Done. But he loops back and he grabs the principle and he drives it straight as a spike into our spiritual hearts. All these things, these 12 things he just noted, all these things proceed from within and defile the man. The real problem is not unwashed hands, but an unwashed heart. This is nothing new. Jesus is not inventing this. Genesis 6, 5, the reason for the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, listen to this, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a big stack of adjectives. Isaiah 4, exactly Isaiah 1 rather, verses four to six. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Sons who act corruptly, they've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound or righteous in it. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick, who can understand it? And in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, sons of, uh, uh, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's our heart. And we're by nature, by our hearts, by our disposition, children of wrath even as the rest. Wow. That's some bad news. What are the implications? First of all, we have to walk away from this text understanding that culpability and guilt for sin does not come from outside you or me. We're not sinful because of anyone else. We cannot blame anyone for our sin. Not your past, you can't blame. You can't blame your experiences or your relationships or the devil. He's given us grace to be able to respond to anything in a way that pleases him. Sin is worse than any trial. Sin is worse than any physical sickness. Sin is worse than the devil. Sin is worse than even death. 
It's the cosmic tyranny and rebellion against God that resides in our heart and sin makes us from our birth enemies of God. Enemies. But, but, Jesus offers cleansing from the inside out. All this wickedness, the residence of evil that resides in me, the residence of evil that resides in you, it can be forgiven and cleansed and changed. So our disposition is not leaning in our affections towards sin. Oh, we we get pulled that way like a magnet to steal. But we have a new leaning toward Christ and toward heaven. Think of this unrighteousness and this uncleanness in, in, in reference to a verse you all, all know very well. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, this is the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleanses our hearts. He changes us. We can never on our own be able to clean and fix and make righteous our hearts before a holy God. But he can, he will, and he has made that provision for us at the cross. Wow. Just a footnote, this has tremendous implications for parenting. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this for a moment. Your biblical anthropology is the lens through which you view those precious gifts God has given you. Oh, they're cute. They're darling. Love them. They're great. But residents of evil resides in their hearts too. If you don't believe me, wait till they're two and 15. Our biblical anthropology matters a lot in our parenting. It's the way we see the real problem in our children. It's the on-ramp for guiding them to God's solution in the gospel. Let's say it again. If sin is not the problem, then the gospel will never be their solution. There's a trend in contemporary evangelicalism to call for preaching that's positive and uplifting. Preaching that makes you feel good when you come to church, that helps you see all your good and all your potential. You can find this with Mr. Osteen on any given night. The good news is God allows us to see our sin and see it taken on Jesus in the cross and paid for and atoned for and forgiveness granted through faith, cleansing of all of our righteousness by our faithful confession. Paul said the time will come when people will not want to hear this but will want to have 1 Timothy 4, their ears tickled in accordance with their own desires. Tell me something good about me. Tell me something great about me. Jesus didn't give us that privilege this morning. He says the residence of evil is in your heart. Evil comes from without, from within us, but we have alien outside of us, righteousness that comes from Christ to cleanse and to solve that problem. 
Our friend, John Owen, labor to know your frame and your temper. See what spirit you are of and what associates in your heart Satan has. This list, some of those are associates in your heart and my heart more than others on that list. Do you know where you're weak? And then he says this in the same book. Do you kill? Do you mortify? Make it your daily work. Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be what? Killing you. You might say, how how is this good news? How is this gracious? Imagine that you had a terminal disease and you didn't know it. And that terminal disease was, was being aggravated every day more and more and more and you had no idea. And you go to the doctor and he says, listen, you have a terminal disease. You're gonna die soon, but I have medicine that can cure your disease. Is that doctor being mean by telling you that you're diseased? Unkind, ungracious? Not at all. Jesus is so kind to say, our our problem is our heart, but he is the solution to our affections and to our hearts. We cannot grasp the good news until we understand the bad news. You understand that? We have to see that from which we are saved. We're saved from God and his wrath, but we're saved from ourselves and our hearts. Who is this man who says, I supersede the law, God in the flesh? Who is this man who forgave a paralytic of his sin and they said only God, Mark 2, can can forgive of sins? Who is this man? This This is God, the Lord Jesus. Not a God, not a representative, not an angel. God in the flesh who wrote the law and controls it, fulfills it, and applies it to our lives. Let me encourage you. If you you see the blackness of your heart in this list, this is a good day for you to be here. God reveals to you that you need him. You can't fix that. Not all of your effort, none of your willpower, none of your aspirations will ever fix that's in your heart. But he can and he will if you will believe that he can and he will and he did by dying by dying instead of me i deserved wrath for that list that's in my heart and god said instead of me killing you i will execute my son who takes your place what a gift what what a gift He knows all this about us and still chooses to offer and to love. What a God. If you want to talk about that, can I just beg you, don't leave the building. Don't leave the building without saying, I need to know more about how I can be forgiven of my sins and have righteousness so that God receives me and accepts me and hell is no threat and heaven is my invitation. No lunch is important enough to run to. No conversation is more important than that. If I could get on my knees and beg and you would respond, I would. Don't leave without talking to someone. This is serious business. 
terrible, terrible assessment that residents, the residents of evil is our heart and a wonderful invitation that Jesus can solve that in the good news of his salvation.